Hello. Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. This is your host, Elon Eleven, and this is a comics podcast for folks who know that Stanley's life story is where objective truth goes to die, which is why it's so important to have a fabulous, well-researched and intriguing biography of the man written and released. That's right. Today, I have on Abraham Reisman to talk about his new book, Abraham Reisman is a journalist whose work has appeared in Vulture, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine, The Boston Globe, and many other outlets. He is the author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stanley, and the forthcoming Ringmaster, The Life and Times of Vince McMahon. He lives in Rhode Island with his partner, the journalist S.I. Rosenbaum, and his website is Abraham Reisman, and his Twitter handle is Abraham Joseph. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, likewise, likewise. I uh, was so happy to hear about this book coming out. I, I felt like there was, we needed sort of a new Stanley biography that was like driven by a historical perspective and understanding of how this is all very political with a capital P and a lowercase p yeah. and all that good stuff. And I loved your what? earlier writing about him. Oh, thank you. I, I'm, I'm curious, when did you hear about the book? Like, how, how did I tell you or how did you first hear about it? I don't remember if you told me or if you said something on Twitter. Like I okay, just yeah, something literally like that. don't yeah. remember. <laughs> no, I was just Do curious because I I've been interested in. I know I'm taking over the interview right, uh, you know, before we even really started it. But I'm always interested in sort of the information pathways that lead people to find out that I exist. Um, you know, just for whatever reason, that kind of information intrigues me, and it's also very hard to find that out. So I'm always curious about like. You know, I know it sounds vain, but it's just fascinating to me if I say, like, when did you first learn that I existed? Um, oh, this is interesting. This is a this is a good origin story. So the first time you came on my radar was when you wrote mm. that Captain America essay that we don't like. And oh. what I like <laughs> and respected about you was that when my friend slash frequent co-host on the podcast, uh, Stephen Adwell, explained why you were wrong, you were like, I see what you're talking about. Like, yeah. To have someone actually listen to, uh, you know, a historian explain something, disagree, and like, be like, oh, you might be right. That never happens in comics. Yeah, I know. I know. I've, I, I look, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, it's, it's unfortunate, but I, I, I try to put, well, anyway, yes, thank you. I mean, so to me, that's like a bigger, it's like, it's like bigger to like, have been wrong and been like, no, I'm like, I'm going to internalize this than it is to like, have never admitted any kind of, I feel like it's the, I feel like it's, I feel like that's the only healthy way to live, you know? Um, that's just the way I've, I've tried to approach things. So anyway, well, I'm glad it was, uh, it was, it was an, that that's an interesting inroad. You, I know a lot of people who first learned about me when I wrote that objectionable Captain America essay, who I then became friends with and some now I'm no longer friends with. So the story goes on, but you know, um, <laughs> it was, it was a big, uh, seminal moment where a lot of people in fandom sort of became aware of me, um, for not great reasons, but you know, uh, it was, it was still an in point where I met a lot of people because like you say, yeah, I really wanted to learn from the criticism because, you know, I hadn't put that much thought into the article. Like, you know, not that I did, whatever. I, I just was letting my emotions take over and I was not like doing the kind of research that I probably should have done into, uh, the ins and outs of what people have said about Captain America in fandom. Um, so once I learned all of that, uh, you know, I, I really thought differently about it. And then, you know, in 2016, I, 
I wrote an essay where I just I just apologized for it. It's it's the only time I've ever written an article where I just sort of out and out go back on what I said. I I mean, it was it was a really humbling experience and I feel like it taught me a lot about how to act on the internet, <laughs> you know, like whether it's writing an article or being on Twitter or whatever, that whole experience, especially like seeing in 2016, uh, there, there being like some degree of, uh, you know, reconciliation with a lot of people who'd been alienated by that initial essay. I was just like, Oh, this is like a better way to live your life rather than like, I'm going to have a hot take and just not give up on it. Even if I start to have my doubts about whether I was on the money, you know? Yeah. And you know, when I'm thinking about it, like, it feels like, you know, when you wrote a, you wrote a biography of Stan Lee, which is just like, I did be an incredibly controversial topic. Um, with, you know, just a lot of there's, you know, folks from generations older than us who have a particular yeah. analysis. And we're at a moment in history where some of the folks who were there are no longer with us. And it's yeah. complicated. I mean, it feels like it's probably good practice for then. Oh, the yeah. Stanley biography. Sure. Well, I've I that's the thing is, you know, occasionally I'll sort of laugh at some some bit of, you know, abuse or conflict that's happening. Um, but for the most part, I try to be not put people on blast because I, I mean, I, I'm big on the mute button, you know, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, you know, the quote tweet button so I can just yeah. dunk on somebody. Yeah. I just feel like the more you can defuse situations, the better it is for literally everybody involved. And like, I don't blame people for going off the handle really because you know, all of these apps and systems are designed to make you want to fly off the handle. But still, if you can avoid it, it's it's much more of a win-win scenario. So yeah, when it comes to the Stan Lee book, you know, I, of course, I'm. I, I, there are going to be people who are very upset about it. And my hope, I, it's probably not the most well-founded hope, is I would hope that a lot of them, a sufficient number of them maybe would actually read the book and see that a lot of what they think about it um, is is not really there. I mean, I've there's I've seen little rumblings here and there from people who are upset saying like I'm trying to cancel Stan Lee or something oh, yeah, which yeah, yeah. is it's just like silly cr- it's silly I mean it gets at that binary that we have with celebrity culture that I just can't stand where it's like either somebody is a perfect golden god or they're getting canceled like if you if you put any criticism toward anybody you're canceling that person so you know, I'm sure there are people who not knowing anything about my book because it's they haven't read it yet. Um, you know, barely anybody has. It's not out yet. Um, you no, know, perhaps they'll they'll I don't know. Somebody will tell them that I'm not just damning Stan Lee. It's all about living with ambiguity, you know, and mm-hmm. um, that's hard to do. People really want to have those binaries, that polarity. And, you know, I have read the entire book. I didn't even know that if I would have time to read the entire book between when you sent it to me and now. Yeah. Um, I have not actually gotten asleep because I'm like, I was super hooked. Like, I, oh, I, really? I just, oh. oh, my God. I read the whole damn thing. Absolutely. Thank even though you. I did not. I did not say to myself that that was a thing that was definitely going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I, you are approaching it with my take on this reality and so uh, of like you know who he was what ended up happening his relation with yeah. Kirby and Ditko etc so it's like okay like you we are from the same camp but like i i thought it was just really complete and excellent and sensitively written and like 
I, you know, I, I was, I'm, I was sad when I read the ending because it is sad what happened with Stanley at the end of his life, regardless yeah. of like whatever else he may have done to other people. Um, like that's still terrible. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I don't think I've seen anything that was this complete certainly before. And I know that there've been books that have come out that are just like, Hey, geography and just, you know, I, it's frustrating. Um, it is frustrating. Yeah. I mean, as what, one of the reasons I like you is we both agree that, um, the comics medium and the superhero genre really merit serious scholarship and serious journalism. And people just don't put time and money into, or, you know, institutional, uh, either funds or or support for good comics journalism and comics history. You know, it's kind of yeah. left to people who have day jobs and have to cram it in. And these are co- really consequential questions, you know, like mm-hmm. th- these are not small matters from a niche uh, for a niche audience. Like you're talking about the fate of empires and, you know, the the way that the entire entertainment economy and a significant portion of the actual economy um, are are built. And that comes out of the comics world, especially recently. And uh, yeah, my, my hope is that um, this book can, can be, you know, well, I hope people like the book, but I, I also hope that like, if it does well, which, you know, Bizrat Hashem will happen, um, there might be more demand uh, and institutional support for serious scholarship and journalism about the comics medium uh, industry and the superhero industrial complex, you know? You're right. Like, this has huge bearing on the superhero industrial complex. You're right. Absolutely. Um, And I... uh, one of the but 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 starting from sort of the earlier part of the book, one mm-hmm. of the things that you did that was just so exciting to me was you actually did research into the Romanian family origins <laughs> of Stanley's predecessor, Stanley's family, and like you know we're both Jews of Eastern yeah. European extraction, and so much of the comics history story is you know particular to the experience of our people in New York. Um, and I don't think anyone had looked at and what was the specific people in our story's story before they came to this country. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I'll confess, I still haven't even done the degree of research into my own family that I ended up doing. In, oh, I've tried, but there's less information out there for whatever reason. I'm, I'm currently working with a genealogist to crack through that. But uh, that same genealogist I worked with initially for uh, the Stan Lee book, um, for True Believer, because uh, there were, you know, databases and ways to look that I just would never know. Um, And it was really important to me that I get the genealogy and the information about Romanian Jewish life at the turn of 20th century in there. So I I worked with this genealogist who really helped a lot. And also I like hired researchers in Romania uh, to look through Romanian source materials. And it just... At times I was like, why am I doing this? And then other most of the time though, I was like, this is, I feel like it's important to, <laughs> it's important to not just for telling this story, but I almost sort of want it to prompt people to think about doing that with their own families. You know, it's like, once you start researching genealogy of other families from a similar origin to your own, even though there are always stark differences, um, it just puts into relief the fact that like, 
you have this whole family history that maybe is not really documented anywhere, especially if you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're Jewish. Yeah, I've done a lot of stuff with, you know, I'm, I'm, I volunteer a lot with the Jack Kirby Museum and Institute, sure. Research Institute. And so I know, I knew more about Kirby, but I, uh, I don't know anything about, you know, the Kirby family back in back in the Palo settlement, you know? And, yeah. and, and, and with Stan being Romanian, that is not, there's a significant Romanian Jewish, ethnic, you know, folks here, but it's not like the biggest population. No, no. And so there's like a niche nature of it, of it as well. Yeah, you know, most, no. Most American Jews are from Russia originally. So, or, it's, or the the broader definition the, of Russia, yes. yeah, the um, Soviet, yeah, yeah, maybe Poland, uh, which of course is often part of no, other countries. No, we're not. We were all fucking. I'm Polish. We were all fucking killed, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Well, never mind then. Yep. Never no, mind. We're all um, fucking Russian. Yeah. Yeah. We're all. Well, it's all Russians. Anyway. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> anyway, we're we're getting to the good stuff now. But um. But yeah. The the point was. Yeah. You're you're exactly right. It's this it's this small population, and I feel like the specificity was really important to get. And at first, it just sort of started out as a hunch. I was like, well, it would be nice to get some of this information. And then the more I found out, the more I really couldn't stop looking. Um, you know, and the other thing that really tipped me off on that was talking to Larry Lieber, um, who is Stan's brother, who is still alive. And he didn't really know anything about the Romanian Jew, like the actual Romania based origins of his parents. He actually knew very little about his parents past, but Mm -hmm. he talked about the way, uh, their father, Jack Lieber, born Yanku Ern Lieber, um, approached Jewishness, like his own Jewish identity and the Jewish community. And it was so starkly different from Stan that I just went, I feel like there's something here. Like what, what, what was, what was the, what was Jewishness to Jack Lieber? What did that mean? And how did that contrast for, to what it meant for Stan Lee? Um, and the research took a while to accumulate everything. And eventually I was just really glad that that was, uh, that Larry had brought that up and that that had really um, lodged itself in my brain because I don't think you can understand a person if you don't understand the the circumstances from which they emerged. Um, and the Romanian aspect was not, it's not like you and me where it would be distant. It's, you know, this was Stan's parents. I mean, he, yeah. he, he's born in 1922 and his dad showed up, you know, I'm bad at math, like 15 years earlier, you know? Yeah. So Anyway, um, thank you for thank you for being interested in that because it it was uh, something I thought was really interesting as well. Yeah, and like you know the the ties to the theater, particularly as yeah. a, a source of American Yiddish popular culture, connects to to me as well. Um, and it, it kind of made me think about you know one of the questions I, I got some questions that I got my own questions, but I did have one <laughs> of the questions that was sent by friend of the show. Um, uh, Spencer Ackerman, journalist oh, Spencer Ackerman. Oh, yeah. Oh, which man. Was, he asked the questions? Oh, my yeah, God. He, I'm... Which, <laughs> which is one, which ties into this in an interesting way. So he hadn't read your book yet because it's like not officially released yet. But he, you know, he yeah. said, um, how is it that of all of the Stan and Jack creations, even presuming that this is mostly Jack and less Stan because hi, um, yeah. how is it that the one thing that's that they can't make work is the fucking X-Men to quote, to mm. quote Spencer here. Like this is the one that is most directly deals with their Jewish experience, their daily lives. Yeah. And instead they run from the metaphor, making it a weird thing about co- atomic anxiety instead of, you know, the greatest idea in all of comics emerging from their direct pain. Is it yeah. assimilationist cringe? Something Philip Broth would recognize. Um, and I reading your book, ver- I have theory on this, 
Yeah, do tell because I because I, I want to know yours. I, I could riff, but it sounds like you've thought about this more than I have. So go on. I I think it's Stan is ran was running away from his ethnic past, especially from his parents, and didn't yeah. want to have to think about himself that way. You know, Jack Jack writes a lot more about Judaism in his art and in his own you know in his work than than Stan yeah. does. So I you know obviously like. As we so said, that, like, yeah, yeah, so a that would lot go of the story with, is really coming from him. But I was about to say, that's the that's the complicating factor is, you know, Kirby always claimed that the stories were, you know, 90 percent to 100 uh, percent his his being Kirby's um, yeah. and that he just sort of dictated to Stan what was going to happen. And maybe they had a brief conversation afterward and that was about it. Um, so we don't really know how much. Uh, either man was contributing to the those early X-Men issues when that was the pairing that uh, the creative pairing that was still on it. And yeah, they really couldn't make it work. You go back and read those early issues and they're hilarious in a lot of ways. Like they're delightful, but they are, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can't beat Magneto writing that cute little curly Q handwriting in the air saying like, <laughs> surrender by midnight a magneto and there's like a little you expect there to be a little heart on it or something but um you know but overall they really couldn't figure out what to do with the x-men that was genuinely interesting and yeah uh anyway i i maybe it was maybe it was stan not wanting to deal with it like maybe i mean this is all complete uh you know off the top of my head i'm just pulling this out but you know perhaps it was um you know, stand tempering Jack. But then again, Jack never said that he tried to create a metaphor um, mm-hmm. with uh, with the X-Men. And he 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 talked about creating the X-Men. Uh, there are some creations that just didn't come up all that often with Jack. But um, the X-Men, he said, you know, he uh, he created, but he, he didn't say anything about like, this was a metaphor for marginalized people or whatever. I mean, they were just sort of throwing out concepts back then. So perhaps, perhaps it's not so much that um, either man was afraid of take, telling a Jewish story. Maybe it was just that that just wasn't how their brains worked when it came to comics. Um, I mean, both of these men had been in the industry at that point for 20 odd years. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, more than that. But I'm bad, again, I'm bad at math. They've been in it for decades, and <laughs> yes. they and they had definitely not um, been writing Jewish characters, you know, or writing minority characters with any kind of regularity. So it may just well have been like, well, you know, why didn't they think something that um, just would be completely outside of their experience, you know? Um, but I, again, this is all just me hypothesizing. It could be yeah. completely not that. But, you know, they have so many characters with outsider status, regardless of, you know, sure. text or text. And That's, it is still funny yeah. to me that, like, Ditko, Spider-Man is, like, so Jewish and Ditko isn't Jewish kind of, like, broke my brain. But... Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, yes. It's, uh, well, Spider-Man and his Jewishness is a whole other topic that maybe we can get to later. But, yes. So... It's complicated. Um, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's a good question from Spencer. <laughs> I, I wish I had a better answer. Uh, neither man really, at least as far as I'd seen, got too much into, uh, you know, why. Actually, I take that back. There's an interview Stan did um, that was in Tom DeFalco's uh, 
uh, X-Men writers to, or Marv, I, I can't remember exactly the title, but it's, you know, writers talk about X-Men. Um, it's a, it's a really good, interesting book of interviews. I haven't read it in forever. So I'm actually drawing a blank on exactly what Stan says, but I'm sure Tom asks him like, um, or asked him, you know, why did this wind down? So uh, it, mm. dear listener, if you're trying to find an answer to that question, I recommend, uh, seeking out Tom DeFalco's, uh, writers talk about X-Men. There's probably something. Yeah. What was what was your favorite? What was the what is the best interview you you'd seen with Stan from the, all the archival stuff that you Ooh. that you looked at for this? That's an interesting question. In general, Stan's interviews were what I found was that they're not super useful as a source of, <laughs> of true information. I mean, everything <laughs> oh, had, really? right. I know it virtually, it was like one of those those fact check things where you just keep going and you're like, well, that's not true. That's a complete fabrication or that's very doubtful and then that's an exaggeration and by the time you're done there's very little he's said in the interview that like is is all that uh you know uh, useful from a purely factual standpoint but in terms of interview quality and the interesting stuff uh you know there's q and a's that he's done but uh one of my favorite uh interviews is uh, you know I, I haven't read the raw transcript of the interview but the quotes that she got was robin green his former secretary's account of marvel that she wrote for rolling stone after she stopped working for stan uh she's a brilliant writer and a very good reporter it appears because she got great stuff out of stan um including this this amazing quote that i found really fascinating from a kind of political standpoint where she got him to say like if there's one message to his comics um it's uh for christ's sake or I, not christ's sake for for goodness mm -hmm. sake something like that don't be bigoted now that quote yeah. has been excerpted a lot and you just end it there and it seems like, oh, wow, OK, so he's standing up for, you know, against racism or, or hatred or whatever. Um, and no, the rest of the quote is him saying, um, you know, if you're he's talking about the right and the left, the extreme right and yeah. the extreme left. Like if you're a John Bircher, don't think that all the, the hippies are coming to uh, rape your daughter. Uh, that is the quite the quote he actually uses. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, if you're a you know a, a leftist, don't think that all of the conservatives have horns. I believe is what he says. And it's like that's what bigotry is to you. <laughs> it's I mean I'm not I shouldn't judge too much. I mean we all have our different uh, our different um, stances on things. But for me, it just was an interesting thing that when people excerpt it. Um, they often leave out the second part, which sort of shows yeah. that it was completely about something else. That, there are a lot of quotes like that in that uh, article from from Robin's interview. She just had a real rapport with him. It was the rare person who was really like had a great relationship with him that predated her being a journalist interviewing him, but who was also actually really good at writing and being a journalist. So uh, that's one that sticks out in my mind. I mean, and frankly, his like both sides take it does show up in his work. Like you see that in the Stan yeah. soapbox um, columns and stuff like that. Yeah. There was, there's a lot in, not just in the soapbox. I mean, in the actual stories too, um, you know, ones that came in the era when Stan was uh, having more un undoubtable uh, writing influence on a lot of the titles because Ditko and Kirby were gone. Uh, and that sort of first generation were gone. He would be writing these stories where they were dealing usually with like campus radicalism. That was the that was the big topic he often came back to. Um, and, you know, it'd be Spider-Man or, or Captain America going to deal with some kind of campus protest because this is the late 60s. I mean, this is I believe those stories were 68 and 69. Campus protests were really serious business and very bad things would happen at them. Um, and 
What was interesting is, you know, although Stan is sort of held up as this counterculture hero, you read those those stories, and in both cases, it ends with this real like, you know, um, the the far right, the far left, or you know, the hippies and the establishment, whatever. They shake hands and like meet somewhere in the middle. Or in the case of the Spider-Man story, um, you know, they get uh, carted off. Everybody gets carted off to jail. And uh, Spider-Man muses that like, oh, this will be great because it'll give them an opportunity to cool off. Like it's a very weird ending. Like it's not like anything's really been resolved. And the best part is just that like police force has subdued everybody and now they'll <laughs> they'll see the error of their ways. And it's it's interesting because, yeah, he was being lionized by people who really wouldn't just – be on much more the hippie end, right? Um, would mm-hmm. not really want to meet in the middle with anybody from the establishment. But Stan could kind of have it both ways. It, it, it's it's sort of remarkable and a testament to his his outreach and salesmanship. Yeah, yeah, he was a tremendous communicator. Oh like, my god, that's why it worked? Yeah, I mean, when you talk to you know, I, whenever I interviewed people who were young in the 60s reading Marvel back then, I'd always ask like, so what kept you coming back? Like what was unique about Marvel back then? And I swear to God, more often than not, the answer is not anything in the stories or the characters. It's I love the letter pages. Like it was Mm. so cool to see yourself uh, reflected either directly if you got a letter published or indirectly because it was like other kids like you or teens like you or eventually college students like you writing in, those letters pages were just like a thrill. I mean, I, there there weren't things like that. There were like fanzines, but fanzines did were not like the actual printed work be, where the letters are being answered uh, by the person you're regarding as sort of the, the, the godhead of this whole operation. Um, so – if you were young reading these comics back in the 60s, there's a really good chance that that relationship he was building with you as a raconteur in those uh, in the back matter where he's like doing the soapbox or answering letters or, you know, just listing what's coming up soon. His way with language and his ability to empathize and connect with people was uh, really tremendous and enormously instrumental in his success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did did DC Comics letter page just not have the same? Didn't have the same. No, it was, it was like dear. It was like dear editor stuff, and it was you know, It's not like the things were doesn't have the personality. It didn't have the personality. I was about to say. I I, I don't want to throw DC letters pages completely under the bus. I'm I'm kind of an establishment type sometimes myself. Um, but that said, they they did not have the like word jazz and uh, personal uh, personal touch that the Marvel letters pages did back then. They, the closest equivalent would have been the relationship that some EC comics or a lot of EC comics actually had mm-hmm. with fans, but it really had not been done in superhero comics before. I mean, yeah, like I guess Stan's Stan's brilliance was really about be, being a, one of the constructors of modern fandom, basically. Oh, by yeah. Developing the shared universe, developing like what is a fandom relationship and like branding fan as an identity, basically. The Mary Marvel Marching Society. Mar- 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 Mary, Mary Marvel, Marvel Marching, Marching Society. Society. Yeah. 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 Um, no, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I um, wish I 
you know, I had a word limit and also just didn't want to lose people who were lay people, but I could write a whole book just about Stan Lee and fandom. Like, you know, mm. that's a comp- just his, his fostering of it, his influence on it and the ways it sort of then passed him by in a lot of ways. Um, but like kept on holding on to some of the things that he'd pioneered. Cause when you talk about, um, fandom, if you look at it from that perspective, you, you don't doubt Stan's influence, you know, I mean that from a perspective of like, community building and selling a product and making people want to interact with that product. Um, you know, he was, he was unparalleled and that stuff is really influential in the development of fandom, especially in, in the West. Um, and in, you know, in the English language, sorry, I shouldn't say the West in, in, in America specifically, but Mm -hmm. it it does bleed out elsewhere then. Um, so yeah, I, I'm rambling now at this point. What was... What? No, no, that was it. I mean, and, you know, the thing for me is, like, as, like, a Jack Kirby partisan, as we all should be, is, like, we can recognize that Stan contributed something to Marvel, but that it wasn't what Stan said Stan contributed to Marvel, you know? Yeah. No, sure. Um, well, that's the thing. Well, that's what I wanted to convey a lot of the, in, in a lot of the book, is that, like, Stan did a lot, uh, a tremendous amount, but... um you know, something that was also true about him was he always boasted of things that were then much more dubious and sometimes outright false. Um, And it's such an interesting case that I think a lot of us can relate to where we just, you you go that extra mile because you don't want to just be, you're you're not satisfied with just being really good at some things. You want to be good at like other specific things or kind of everything. And so, you know, you smooth the corners sometimes and, you know, I, I don't want to make Stan out to be Satan incarnate because I think that temptation is there for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like at a certain point, and I, I feel like this is something I from your book. I got from your book as well. Like he didn't even remember what, like the you know when the he be, he be like he he be, he'd repeated these lines so much he didn't remember or even know what the truth was anymore because he had had this persona. That he built up around it and then right. was just like doesn't fucking remember. He's an old man. He doesn't fucking remember. No, no. There was so much that uh, – and, and you know, you get it. That gets it also the the, the sort of fly-by-night nature, fly nature of the comics industry back then among his generation. Like they did not take it seriously necessarily as something that they needed to like – document like they weren't writing in their Mm -hmm. diaries at night like uh i just created this new character and uh you know i i have all these plans for it now that was some maybe that was dispositional but a lot of it was also just that like that wasn't how they thought about these comics like comics was still this kind of trashy medium where there weren't extensive records kept about things and and of course that then leads to uh the the larger questions about like you know how we can't figure out exactly who created what because again these things were not really being documented um and you know that that's the origin of a lot of the the problems it's it's frustrating have oh yeah any clarity in his own mind no for for him i think a lot of it was he didn't remember stuff i think there was definitely stuff that he 
was, you know, had done when it was too recent for him to have totally forgotten about it. But I'm sure by the end, there were a lot of uh, aspects of his career, both positive and negative, that, you know, he hadn't thought about too much when they were happening and may not have remembered, whether that's artistic or like the way he treated someone, you know. So that's one of the reasons why you don't want to just rest on interviews that Stan did later in his career. You you really want to go back to as early as you possibly can to when he's speaking contemporaneously to certain things happening. And that's where you might get stuff that is at least theoretically more reliable, you know. Well, and, I mean, and that's not to say, though, that there aren't things that we know demonstrably that he did when he was younger that are obviously fucked up, um, you know, pointing to the, the very deliberate union busting infiltration uh, that he pulled on poor, young, idealistic Neil Adams. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I know. I, I tried to have as much labor relations stuff in the book as I could because I do feel like, you know, this gets at our earlier point about how I'd love to see more um, you know, serious comics journalism in his history is you 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 don't see the degree to which the comics industry is this labor basket case. I mean, it's just awful, and it remains that way to this day. It used to be, in some ways, even worse, um, uh, mm-hmm. or or maybe better. I mean, it's never been great. It's and I I I wanted to try and emphasize the fact that like yeah, this is it's it's a it's a pretty unjust system. You know, that's something where I didn't feel bad about lightly editorializing. I just, I don't think comics is good for the people who put their labor into it, especially their creative labor. And the work for hire system coming up against the shared universe is kind of the original sin of the comics industry in a way, right? Completely. Once you say like, these creations all don't live in what the creator wants to live in, the, the setting that they have created for them. Uh, they live in the, this mutual setting where the universe itself, the brand, um, you know, supersedes everything. And everything you create is suddenly a citizen of this other country where you're not the, the king. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And – you know, the shared universe for that reason and many other reasons was this genius move. I mean, you, if you remove from any, any moral valence, it's a genius move. It, it, it accentuates what already was there in the way of work for hire, but in some subconscious way also enlists the fans on your side. Um, you know, I, I think about that a lot in terms of uh, the current incarnations of superheroes were like, you know, in, in 2014, there was a, a court case that almost made its way to the Supreme Court um, about uh, the Kirby claims on um, uh, claims on his characters and uh, the Marvel characters. And if it almost went to the Supreme Court and if they had ruled in favor of the Kirby's, I think it would have just blown up the entertainment industry. I mean, it would have set yeah, this precedent. I love it. For, I know. It would have been this. I mean, I, I don't know how much the Kirby's made in that settlement, but it must have been an ungodly sum because, I mean, it really did have the potential to be this seismic event for the entertainment industry. Um, yeah. And that's because, as you know, as soon as you start acknowledging – um, the fact that these these properties have been marketed, uh, you know, immorally, then it starts to fall apart. But what's interesting is I wonder how fans would have reacted. Like if Disney said, well, folks, we can't do the MCU anymore, sorry, and threw up their hands, fans probably would just riot or, or even mm-hmm. if they felt some kind of guilty conscience, I don't think the world would tolerate 
um, a, you know, I mean, they would have to tolerate it. The Disney wouldn't <laughs> be able to continue, but there would be such backlash and it would, that would be part of the seismic event. And I don't think people would necessarily look at and go, oh, wow, actually, this is a good development because, you know, the rights of uh, the working people of the world are being respected finally. Like that, that's not, mm-hmm. I think, how people would approach it. Well, but here's the thing. Disney would ever approach it this way. But if I was ruler of Disney, I can totally figure out ways to give people, give creators financial and artistic credit for their creations while keeping them in a shared universe with each other. Like, it's complicated, but there was by no means is it impossible. No, it's um, not impossible. You just have but to like, fucking give a fuck, and they never right. did. I don't think they would want to, I mean, you know, this is all hypothetical, but like, sure. I also don't think that they would, the price tag would probably be too high for them. You know, I don't think they would... Mm-hmm. Uh, necessarily be able to be in a position to negotiate that stuff. But anyway, it's all hypothetical. My larger point was just, I, I do think there's, you know, Stan created this thing, uh, you know, the combination, as you pointed out, of of work for hire in the shared universe, where you really create this, this addiction maneuver, me- mechanism, whatever, mm-hmm. and people don't take kindly to withdrawal from that. And, um, you know, it's 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 again removed from any kind of valence of whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea. That combination was very potent. You have a wonderful quote in the book that was um, Ebert uses this uses the, the line that uh, movies are like a machine to create empathy. Stan's line of comics was a machine designed to create addiction. It was. Man, oh, so thank good. you. I appreciate that. But it's true. It's I mean, so it good. was. And yeah. it's still it works now for the MCU and doesn't work so much for the people that don't know how to properly apply it, aka like you know dark universe or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to make it work. But if you can make it work, oh my god, you are in for a pretty penny. Um, it's it's such a, a it's such a it was revolutionary. I mean, there really were not examples of things. I mean, I I was recently on. Um, a, a Jewish podcast, we were talking about the comparison point being, you know, the actual like Bible, because the right. Bible is also a consume or a comprised rather of all these disparate texts by disparate authors that are nonetheless held together to be a part of the same world and the same work. And there are contradictions that like you smooth over with, you know, we'd call them no prizes, but the rabbis <laughs> would call them, you know, discourse in the, in the Mishnah and the Gemara, yeah. you know, yeah. and um, you end up with, and there's like uncertain authorship. So that's the only thing I can think that overlaps with it. And it's certainly, uh, you know, not the most irrelevant comparison because, you know, mm-hmm. biblical, uh, you know, attachment to biblical texts and attachment to superhero texts these days are, you know, things that are differences of degree, not necessarily of distinction, you know? And like, look who was making comics is coming from the Jewish, from Jewish writers, Jewish artists, yeah. like, especially in the early days. So yeah, makes absolutely makes sense. I know it does. I, it's, I don't know. Maybe that is, maybe it doesn't, but it's interesting. I mean, who else is there? There's Carmine Infantino. It's Italian. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like well, di- and you got Ditko, you know? <laughs> Ditko from, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, from the, the, from the Balkan Slavs. Yeah. So here we are. Here we um, are. One of the interesting things from this also is how, from your book, is how clearly Stanley did not really respect comics as an art form itself. And, Mm. you know, he basically stopped reading comics as soon as he could get away with, like, stopping reading comics, basically. But And I'm I'm charmed by his relationship with French New Wave director Alain René uh, of Hiroshima Monomore fame, uh, you know, like, and, and he's, so he's like this 
you know, this high art director mm-hmm. comes to Stan and then says, I love your work because, of course, the French have taken comics seriously right, for exactly. a long time. Yeah. And Stan is like, I'm embarrassed of comics, but I love you as a validator of me. Let's right. go make projects together. And then the projects they make together are fucking bonkers. Yeah, the inmates. And not in the good and- way. The inmates and the monster maker. Yes. Uh, pretty wild pitches. Um, and they didn't really go anywhere. But yeah, Stan wanted out. I mean, as early as 1945, when he gets uh, back from it, well, back, he didn't really go anywhere. But, you know, once he finishes his service in World War Two, you know, immediately you have him trying to um, start a textbook company with Random House. Um, and it doesn't go anywhere, but that's like an indicator of, and then throughout the 40s and 50s that, uh, you know, impulse only increases. He's trying to get into newspaper comics or or TV or radio or advertising. And he he just did, by his own admission, until the Marvel years, he did not care about comics, did not care about that job, did not care about writing. That's him actually saying that, like in his memoir and in some other uh, places, but especially in the memoir. And then we're supposed to believe that just sort of abruptly everything changes and he loves the comics industry in the 60s. Now, he probably does on some level because the comics industry was being great to him right then. Mm -hmm. But what you have to reckon with is like, he then, you know, even during the 60s, he kept trying to escape comics. Um, there were all these uh, professional stabs that he took, you know, d- ranging from, uh, you know, all the way to <laughs> ranging all the way to a political talk show that he filmed a pilot for in 1968, where he was like talking to student journalists or young journalists from the radical, you know, fringe and not all of them, but some of them and just sort of shooting them down as uh, being, you know, ill-considered whatevers. So, yeah, uh, Stan wanted to get into other things. Um, and comics was never really his passion. I mean, he would diss the comics industry. He would diss comics readers privately. I mean, there's this amazing recording of him talking to Alain René and his wife over dinner. I could not tell you for the life of me why they recorded this, um, but they just recorded reel-to-reel tape of them talking to Alain that night. And Alain, as you pointed out, yes, he's French, so he understands Bon Désigné comics, but he says he just doesn't understand people who only read comics. And Stan, right, and Stan- Nor do I. Nor do I, yes. Uh, And Stan jumps in and goes like, I can't, doesn't even just say people who only read comics. He goes, and I can't understand people who read comics. Not just, it's just, he he was like, Mm -hmm. if I wouldn't read them, if I had the time to not uh, have to read them. And it's it's really crazy to hear. And it's- it's so revealing. I mean, why would he have, he would, I mean, maybe he's trying to impress Elon, but it feels very passionate and heartfelt and goes along with other statements he made over the years that really dissed uh, the comics industry and the comics medium. He wanted to Mm -hmm. do movies. He wanted to um, be well known as this great writer uh, of, of novels or poetry or whatever. Um, So anyway, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Go ahead. It also shows why when he actually did have to try to write stuff on his own later, it was bad. Is because you can't write a good comic if you don't like comics. That's well, just... that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to. Although he he didn't. I mean, he did. I guess there were some comics here and there, but you're right. When he was doing them, they were often just very weird. I mean, for one thing, he hadn't really figured out how to update his style. Yeah. Um, which was you know difficult, but also. Yeah, he he his approach to writing was was 
you know, I don't want to put on a critic hat, but like sometimes it could be like, it didn't feel as naturalistic in, you know, 2009 as it did in 1969, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's not just him not updating with the times. I think it's also like that may have been, this is just sort of hypothesizing, that may have been the limit of how much he wanted to invest in learning about how comics work and how to update his style or whatever. He, he had the formula that had worked for him and he just sort of kept going with that. And, you know, again, that's not a crime. It's just something that you sort of have to reckon with and incorporate into your larger understanding of of who he was. One of the interesting things that you wrote about was Stan had this obsession with doing photo books that had different captions. Captioned photos. photos. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, Stan Lee kind of made meme culture. Before oh, his time. <laughs> that's brilliant. A lot of them do read like memes. That's a great point. I, I should have said that in the book. You're a genius. But like, yeah, it's <laughs> you. They are because it'll just be this like existing news photo or famous piece of artwork. Those were sort of or, or you know, cheesecake photo. And there will be, a, you know, a brief caption that could just easily have been in impact font uh, at 24 mm-hmm. point um, on the image uh, uh, in, you know, on, on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, the memes did not catch on. He did not go viral with them really ever. And he was trying them from the 50s up until 2008, um, you know. Uh, part, and everywhere in between it's it's this really fascinating through line that once you start collating all the data you start to see maybe if he had been trying them again in the meme age of today they would he would have finally yeah, may- found his audience exactly could have gotten really into boomer humor or something yeah oh my god that's crazy <laughs> um one of the other things is that you delved delved into in the book were two of the really pivotal pieces of journalism written about Stan at the time Mm. um, and how they impacted Stan's life. And one of those was the Sally Kempton piece in the village voice that seemed like it was kind of the first, the first piece to validate uh, superhero comics as a artistic, like as a thing that smart people could read basically. Yes. Yeah. Sally Kempton, who was a young writer then, um, uh, she wrote this really interesting essay. It wasn't really a reported essay. It was based on reading comics and sort of hearing, keeping her ear to the ground. But she was talking about um, this this idea of pop culture cults, you know, which now I guess we would call fandom um, and fandoms. And, you know, she's speaking about them, although the word cult has negative connotations, she's speaking about them pretty lovingly and says that, Mm -hmm. you know, one that it's all building up to her saying, you know, one pop culture cult that's really worth paying attention to is that of Marvel. And the article is really useful because, A, you're right, it does um, provide this this force uh, that helps validate Marvel and validate Stan. but uh, it also ends up uh, being a, p- a document that has information about how people were uh, approaching it. Because she's, she's not saying I discovered Marvel. She's saying like the people in the village are talking about Marvel or like, you know, the kids mm-hmm. on college campuses are talking about Marvel. So it's really the first time we have reporting of some kind, even though it's kind of vague reporting um, about the kinds of things that people were 
more ephemerally uh, engaging with when it came to Marvel, um, you know, things that maybe are not preserved, but that at the time or can't be, you know, because it's like a conversation that happened and either people overheard it and reported it or not. So anyway, it's yeah, the Sally Kempton is an interesting document. Um, it's also fun to look at it in its original, uh, you know, somebody scanned a PDF of uh, the actual pages it was printed on. And just looking at the ads in the Village Voice from 1964 are just, it's adorable and amazing. It's like Balkan folk dancing lessons yeah. and like a lot of anti-war protests. And you're just like, God bless the, you know, I, <laughs> it'd be fun to go yeah. visit that period for for at least a couple of days. Um, and, the, and the other piece of journalism is the famous Times Herald article that like just really alienated Kirby. Jack yeah, Harold, Kirby, uh, Harold, Harold, Harold Tribune, Harold Tribune. Yes, and you went and you interviewed the author yeah. of that article. I know. Had that anybody was... interviewed him before? No, no. I, I, I. Wow. He, um, uh, he. I, I can't even remember if I ended up putting this in the book. I probably ran out of like flow and room, but I, I did um, basically tell him for the first time that that article had had any impact. He had no idea. He had absolutely Whoa, no he idea. Didn't know. No, he had okay, no idea. For folks clue. who don't know what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah, go ahead. so there was an article in which, uh, you know, a journalist from a mainstream publication came to Marvel and toured around and basically wrote something very dismissive about Jack saying like, oh, he, I couldn't tell the difference between him and a girlfriend no, no, foreman, which for yeah, the record yeah. is anti-Semitic. Like, oh, oh, I never right? thought about that, but it totally is anti-Semitic. Well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't necessarily say that. It's it, definitely, it can it, be it read is. that way. Is it, I don't know that the guy meant it that way, but it's no, anti-Semitic. It, it, it's like yeah. this person is a working class Jewish person. And right, therefore in the garment industry. <laughs> therefore, they work in the garment industry and they're not a, a serious visual artist. And huh, where meanwhile, you know, Stanley is this visionary. And um, the article, you know, Jack and, and Roz saw it and it was like, uh, Roz Kirby were like, fuck Stanley. I can't believe you would like dismiss my artistic yeah. create, create, you know, like this. And um and it sort of solidified in the public's mind that the artists were just technicians and that Stan was a genius. Yep. And yep. nobody had interviewed the journalist. Good God. Yeah. No, he was hard to track down previously. But then I think, you know, I, I'm going to disappoint you because I can't remember the exact story of how I got his contact information. When I'm searching for someone in, you know, the various databases that are available, um, I kind of go into a fugue state and uh, emerge with names in my hands and and blood all around and I don't know what happened um but uh I I found him somehow I tried to find him back when I wrote this initial profile of Stan that ran in 2016 uh but to no avail and then somehow that I I wish I could remember I stumbled across his email address and I emailed him and said uh hey is well the 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 thing that I think may have helped was at some point I realized that he uh was misspelling his name deliberately in his byline that was not his legal name mm. um it was his pen name and so uh, it was Friedland, and he spelled it as a, a byline with two E's, but it was really I-E. So I found his email address and emailed him, and initially he said, no, he didn't want to talk to me. Um, he said, like, uh, sounds somewhat interesting, but I, I just don't want to get into anything. And I wrote back, and this is one of the only times this has ever worked in any contacts in my life. I basically <laughs> just wrote back and said, pretty please. Like, I, <laughs> I had no additional tout. Like, I had no other thing that I could offer him. I was just like, come on, really? I would love it if you'd talk to me. And he was like, okay, fine. So he calls me and just goes, this, this is Nat. What do you want? What do you want? 
And he's this kind of like, he was very nice, but he, he is this sort of, you know, older journalist from a previous era. And um, we had this fascinating conversation. It was really two conversations um, that uh, shed a lot of light on what had happened there. My plan is if the book does well, um, I'm going to start releasing full transcripts of interviews that I did for it. Um, uh, I have to work out exactly how that would work. I probably have to get people's permission for that because they did not sign up for a Q&A. They signed up for me excerpting things. Um, but if I can get people to agree with it, uh, and I would hope, my, one of my hopes is that Nat would be okay with that because I'd love to share for comics historians the full conversation we had about that article because it really is this seminal um, piece for a, a lot of reasons, as as you've pointed out. And people, again, like I said, Nat had no clue. He told me a lot of stuff that he remembered, but he 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 had seen the obituary for Stan that ran in Wired, or not obituary, you know, an article after Stan died that Wired had run. He was like, oh, right, Stan Lee. Hadn't thought about him since I wrote Whoa. that article, basically. Oh, I guess he was more complicated than I thought. And then I contact him a few weeks or months later, however long it was, and I told him, yeah, you know, so your article had this big impact. I presume you know that. And he goes, nope, had no idea. I have no idea what you're talking about. And like, this is, this is like the, of all, in all of the history of comics journalism, there are like two, I would say maybe two articles that rise to the level of importance that, um, but there are two articles that rise to that like top level Omega mutant you know, level of importance. <laughs> and one is the New York Herald Tribune article. And the other is the interview with Jack Kirby that ran in the comics journal in 1990, but was conducted in 1989. Right. Those, those are like the moments where journalism about comics for good or ill really changed the shape of comics um, in a lot of ways. And they're, they're fascinating documents to revisit both of them. I, it's interesting. Cause I have, I have strong recollections of the soapbox columns from when Jack died mm. um, in like 90 and like, cause I was reading comics. I yeah. was recently, I guess, reading comics when that had happened. And so it was interesting because um, they, the comics understood that they had to regard Jack as a seminal figure that sure. everybody cared about. That was extremely important, but they couldn't admit like, Oh, by the way, he basically invented the MCU. Like, um, well, there was no CU at the time. No, you know but I mean, he basically Marvel invented U, yeah. the six one six, but uh, it was but it was interesting moment because they realized that they had to treat these other creators seriously, but they couldn't quite get to the next level on the it. step. No, I mean and that it, was yeah. after the jacket. That was that was and that was after the comics journal interview. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, when Jack dies in the early nineties. Um, there's a lot of bad blood between him and Stan and him and Marvel. And Jack was not, Jack's a fascinating, contradictory figure in a lot of ways. And one of them is he really hated Stan and Marvel, but also was capable of being extremely nice to them and about them. But then occasionally, if you got him really talking, uh, for an extended period of time, or even not that extended period of time, he would sort of cheerfully tell you like, yeah, Marvel is like the SS or like, yeah, Stan Lee is a complete fraud, you know? And he would, he would say this according to his, his, uh, assistant, uh, Steve Sherman, he would say this kind of stuff. And then the next day, he'd just be like back to even just the minute the tape recorder stopped running, Jack would just sort of be back to like whatever his mood had been before the interview. Yeah. These things did not get him emotionally incensed. It was more just ideologically. He just completely 
felt like these were criminal acts that had been done. He just was not really a rageful guy all that much and didn't really get high on like uh, drama. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It it definitely just comes off like, and it's a personality trait I've seen before. You know, to me, I'm like, oh, that doesn't seem contradictory. I I know people like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And you know, the thing I, I don't even I feel like this is just a, a saying that everyone's had at this point, it, like without even attribution is like, you know, as we all know, like Jack Kirby working solo makes the fourth world and Stanley working solo right, makes right. Stripperella. Right. Like, it, it makes it very clear, like, who's up, who's on what, what level here. Yeah. But, I mean, you don't want to rule. I mean, just so the listeners know, people who haven't read the book, Alana is more certain than I am about the authorship of the Marvel <laughs> Universe and all the characters, which I completely to res- be clear. totally respect that. I just, you know, the views of the host do not necessarily review uh, yes. reflect mine. Um, but but yeah, you make a compelling case when you talk about the fourth world in Stripperella, which is the common sort of comparison point. Um, and it's it's all circumstantial evidence, but it's stuff that you sort of have to incorporate and that has not been acknowledged in the official history, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and as I said here, though, I completely acknowledged Stanley was a fucking genius for thinking of the shared universe. Like there's oh, yeah. as a marketer and as a com- I mean, there's he was brilliant to just yeah. not brilliant at everything. Right. Um, uh, and um, one of the things you also went into is trying to get to the bottom of the origin of the best line Stan ever wrote, which was, of course, with great power must also <laughs> come great responsibility. And like trying to be like, is it from that? Fr- is it from the? Uh, is it from the French? Is it from yeah, the National like, Convention? It, yeah, yeah, right. It's. It, I think you're. But I, I think ultimately you're so to say it came from the ether of our culture as a whole, from well, all these various I, sources. You know. Well, I said. Well, what I say in the book is like it's entirely possible that it came from the cultural ether, and Stan just happened to be in convergent evolution, or you could have ripped somebody <laughs> off. I mean, one of the speeches was Churchill, and another was. Uh, sorry, speeches where this phrase had been used. One was Churchill, another was FDR. Stan was certainly like uh, alive yeah. and aware and smart enough to be reading stuff that those men said. So it's it's definitely not beyond the realm of possibility that he just sort of lifted it. But I'm not accusing him necessarily of that. I'm just saying it's a, a possibility no. we have to consider because there really are – I mean these other quotes just basically are that. I mean there are different dressing around it, but the exact it, – it's literally the words power and responsibility and like with power comes responsibility. It just So again, it could be convergent evolution or maybe it's something else. And the way it's deployed in the story is ultimately what's so powerful. Oh, it? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's just I, I fixated on the phrase just because that's the one phrase anybody can quote from Stan Lee, which yep. is yep. is fascinating. Like, here's this guy who's held up as this as one of the great writers of the 20th century. And if you ask anybody to quote him, best you can come up with is, you know, with <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility, which, of course, is a misquote. So yeah. it, it's it's fascinating. Like, there are very few things that really get cited, but that one gets so disproportionately cited that it felt like, you know, digging into the language was something important. Um, of the really bonkers ideas from the later period um, where they were coming up, where Stan and uh, Elaine or various other people were coming up with bonkers new concepts, which of them were you like the most like, 
That might have actually been kind of cool. Oh, um, oh, you, <laughs> you mean the um, the the stuff that he would come up with outside, like extracurricularly, or or like from yeah. The, I mean, I'm looking at this list. Okay, this is this is from the so this is from the book, dear dear listeners. Yeah. Uh, Rocky's Carl Weathers, starring in a Luke Cage movie, oh, those. a Daredevil TV show, written by Oscar-winning Sterling Siliphant. Tom Selleck as Doctor Strange, an X-Men movie. Who could have imagined? A Human Torch movie, a Spider-Man movie done by Roger Corman, Angela Bowie as a Marvel super spy. The Black Widow. Yes, that's the one I most wanted to happen because can you imagine the drama of freaking Angie Bowie being Black <laughs> Widow and like having to be on a film set? With, like, uh, And Stan would have been much more involved with that one because that was during the period when he was actually in charge of this sort of stuff. So like Stan interacting with Angie Bowie during a bad day on set is something that I would give anything to be a fly on the wall in an alternate universe for. Yeah, yeah. But also the fact that he knew who she was, right? Like, yeah, you know, well, I, I mean, that he, he's he's not a boomer, right? No, like, th- this may well have been the. I mean, you never know. I, I don't know how he and Angie Bowie first made contact, but there were definitely people who it would be you'd be surprised that Stan would make contact with. But he'd literally just be at a party, and someone would say, "Oh, this is person X. So and so is really famous for Y, or is really rich because of this." And Stan, especially if they were famous, he was very much as as Peter Paul, one of his cohorts said, he was a celebrity geek. Um, so he, if he met somebody who you told him was famous, he would, you know, start talking to you about how you know you could collaborate or whatever. And um, you know, that's that's how Stripperella, speaking of Stripperella, came to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was talking to Pamela Anderson's uh, brother at a party, and uh, the topic of well, you're Pam Anderson's brother. What if we came up with a superhero identity for Pam uh, came up and that turned into Stripperella? It's a longer story than that. But like, you know, you wouldn't expect Stan and Pam Anderson to necessarily be in the same circles. uh, But, you know, uh, Stan would sometimes just sort of be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and you know, you have some stories of just crazy stuff that I'd never heard before, like the Carnegie Hall show, for example. Oh like yeah. The, the Carnegie Hall show is wild. The Carnegie Hall debacle as it were. But. Yeah. 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 The, the Stan, Stan in, in, uh, the early seventies, um, did a one night only show at Carnegie Hall where he got, it was this tribute to him, basically not even a tribute to Marvel. It was the brainchild of Steve Lemberg, this guy who held a lot of the rights for Marvel and other media at the time. And it was this total disaster. Like, it, you know, it was this weird smattering of different kinds of acts. Like, there was, you know, this bit where Stan would, like, read lines from comics while Roy Thomas, his protege's rock band, would play. And, you know, uh, uh, and secretaries in costumes would start, like, you know, drawing things. Um, or, you know, there was a point where like, you know, they had like jazz music and then there was Stan Stan's daughter and wife reading a long poem he'd written called God Woke, this long philosophical poem. Uh, there was a moment where like Dr. Doom came in and stole Stan and a voice came on and said like, everybody, you have to sing the Mary Marvel marching song to bring Stan back. And uh, there's just like deafening silence because, I mean, A, nobody's having a good time and B, like, it's not like these people have necessarily memorized it all and like are ready to <laughs> park it out. Yeah. And and like yeah. the world's tallest man was there and Tom Wolfe was there. It was this this truly bizarre night. Um, and it was this disaster and Stan really felt awful the, you know, after the show was done. 
And I don't know how much of an impact that had on his psyche, but um, you you have to imagine it must have been something that was was difficult for him and left some kind of some kind of scar, however small or large. There's a great question we were sent by Chase Magnet. Um, oh, I love Chase. What aspect? Yeah. What aspect of Lee's life was it most difficult to obtain primary sources for, and how did you overcome that hurdle? Well. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's two ways to answer that. First, there's the um, documents that exist that I couldn't get. And then there's the things that I wish there were documents of that I couldn't get. Mm. And the the documents I uh, that don't exist that I couldn't get, obviously the hardest to find uh, would have been, um, you know, uh, things that – I shouldn't say they don't exist. They probably don't exist. It, you know, things that prove the authorship of these characters. But as far as things that do exist, let me think. Hardest documentation to obtain. Well, I think it was probably stuff from before, um, before stuff that had from the Lee archives that had not been uh, donated to the archive, uh, fr like from the Lee home family that had not been donated to the Lee archives in Wyoming. Uh, why they're in Wyoming is a whole other story. But like those things. Why are they in Wyoming? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, in 1981, 80, I can't remember which year it was. Um, the director of the AHC reached out to Stan, who was not super famous in the mainstream at that point, and said, uh, do you want to donate your papers and recordings to to us? And Stan, the story goes, asked, well, who else is in there? And they listed some people. And when they got to Jack Benny, he said, well, if it's good enough for Jack Benny, it's good enough for me. So, um, Love it. But also you have to remember that like people were not really asking much for his papers at this point. So it may just have been that they were sort of the first to ask and were in the right place at the mm -hmm. right time. But anyway, whatever the, the logic was or the story behind it, uh, Stan then donated stuff. Stan and his wife, Joan, donated stuff to the University of Wyoming starting in the early 80s all the way up to about 2011. Um, and it now resides in about uh, just under 200 boxes worth of materials resides um, in the AHC in Laramie. And anybody can go. It's free of charge. I mean, you have to reserve some time and space, whatever, but you can you can just go do it. Um, and the trouble is getting out there. I mean, there's no direct flights to Laramie. I mean, you have to fly to Denver and then take a either, you know, 5 a.m. flight or a like, you know, 10 p.m. flight to get to and from Denver. It's rather inconvenient, but you, it's a wealth of material. I mean, it's insane the amount of stuff that's in there. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky that uh, Stan and Joan, for whatever reason, were so generous with, I mean, I'm sure there were things that, well, this gets back to what I was saying before. I'm sure there were things I was not able to get because uh, I did not have the cooperation of the Lee estate. Um, and that's frustrating because especially things from before the 60s, um, you know, any materials or photos or documents or whatever that might exist, those did not end up for the most part in the archives. So maybe those things don't exist, but I would imagine some stuff survived. And I, I was not, because of the... Um, the difficulty of getting any kind of cooperation with the Lee estate um, that that was not uh, able to happen. I, I'm trying to think what's what's something that I actually did find. Well, it's not a document, but hearing the um, you know the semi clandestinely recorded audio tapes of um, Stan uh, that Kia Morgan, his associate from late in his life, yeah. had recorded. That was something that took a lot of you know. Uh, work that, uh, you know, I won't re reveal the whole trade craft, but that, uh, you know, he had, 
he had told me very early in our communications that he had those recordings um, and then really kept teasing me uh, with the prospect of listening to them for months and months. Um, and it was it took a lot of persistence and um, communication to be able to get to a point where uh, I was able to hear them. Um, and uh, but, you know, that was something that throughout the process, I was thinking, I really hope I get to hear this stuff. And then, you know, ultimately, I was able to break through the barriers and, and have that happen. That's really wild. Uh, we got a good question from Chris Arant, um, who said, oh, "I love all I love all the I love all these people. This is great." Yeah, I got some good questions then. This is published after Lee's death. If you had a chance to ask him one question and get an honest answer, what oh, would it be, wow. and what do you think the answer would be? Well, I mean, obviously, you'd want to ask about. I mean, I feel like we have to say a question other than who created the characters, right? I mean, that's, yes, a quite, that's, yes, yes, a that's, question. That, other, we've yeah, we've covered that, <laughs> right? That's a little too easy. I mean, personally, just based on my interests, I'm not sure exactly which question I would choose, but it'd be something about his family and his heritage. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah. either his Jewish background, like what he remembers about Jewishness from growing up. You know, that that's something I think I guess I would ask him if he were, you know, the lasso of truth were around him and he had to actually give me an <laughs> honest answer. I would want to know what are your actual feelings about Jewishness and your Jewish upbringing? Um, you know, beyond the deflections, beyond the, well, that doesn't isn't something I think about that much. What what were what were his actual thoughts about why Jewishness was something he didn't want to engage with? Um, and what did that have to do with, you know, the Jewishness that was expressed in his family? Um, you know, so maybe that's just my private little crusade, but I would love to. No, that's that. what I want to. Oh, to, really? If, okay, if I'm yeah. not going to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, if, yeah, if we're not if I'm not going to ask him about like the actual labor practices and ownership right. of the art. Like, yeah, I want to know that, too. Oh, you know, one of the things that broke my heart reading this book is his poor brother, Larry Lieber. I remember, you know, not even realizing that that had been his brother when I was younger reading, reading stuff. And yeah. I just, I feel so bad. Like, I, like what, what can be done for poor Larry Lieber at he, this juncture? Yeah, I, I mean, he, Larry, I will say Larry is, is looked after enough. I mean, there are uh, okay, comic, comics professionals really care about him and- um, you know, look after him. So you don't have to worry too much about him. Um, okay. I'm glad but, to hear that. But yeah, I mean, in terms of his emotional arc, I mean, it was a lot of stuff that was very hard to hear. I mean, we, we had two long interviews. One was four hours and the other was about an hour and a half. And especially in the first one, the, the four hour one, which was in his apartment, uh, just 40 odd days after Stan's death, he cried a lot. I mean, it was it was a very intense interview and conversation. Um, you know, and we went off the record a bunch of times because there was stuff he wanted to share that, you know, I will never share, but that was mm -hmm. even more tragic than the stuff that was that was actually uh, said mm -hmm. on the record. And, you know, I, I tended to find Larry to be a more trustworthy source than the average bear because especially mm -hmm. when it came to the comics industry, Larry really does not care about comics. Even he, he, he actively dislikes that he had a career in comics. I mean, that's just what he has said to me. I mean, he, he wishes he'd been a serious artist or whatever, um, or a, a novelist. And that's similar to Stan, but, um, Larry's response is not to uh, contra Stan. His response is not to then inflate his own importance. It's to denigrate himself and just say, well, yeah. I, I, I'm not really worth anything and I didn't create anything good. And, you know, I, 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 
I, I wouldn't worry too much about him, but it's definitely a story that um, I was, uh, is, is hard to hear. And I'm very grateful to Larry that he was so generous with his time and let me hear a lot of the stuff. I mean, he, he kept saying, um, the magic words that every journalist wants to hear when they're interviewing someone, which is, I've never told this to anyone before. Um, and you know, I, I really, um, I can't be, uh, I, I really express my gratitude to him for being so generous with his, his time and thoughts. And you and he gets the last word. He does get the last word, which and, we we won't spoiler, but yes. No, and what a word it is. And if I was a better host, I would make that be the end of the podcast. But I actually have one other thing I want to talk with you about, which yes. was, what was your impressions and thoughts of Stanley as a kid reading or or young person? Or oh, whatever, you know, yeah, sure. So I first became aware of Stan not so much from comics, but from uh, the Marvel Action Hour the animated series mm. that ran in the early 90s. It's the least known of those that era of Marvel cartoons. Uh, but he did these little live-action intros for every episode because the episodes were about sort of the odds and ends of the Marvel Universe as of then, so like Iron Man and the Hulk, which were not as popular as X-Men and Spider-Man. Um, and so they wanted, the, the creators of the show wanted to have some kind of through line. Specifically, this was the idea, I, I, at least reportedly, of his friend Ron Friedman. Um, they decided uh, to give a through line for kids so they would know that at least one thing was going to be consistent from episode to episode. It was that there would be Stan uh, doing these little live action intros. So you could always depend on old Stan. He would always be there. Um, and so... I didn't have a particularly emotional response to him, but I, he's a, it etched itself in my mind just in terms of his performance because the character of Stan Lee, which he was performing there, which was very much not who he was in behind closed doors, um, is, is so indel, it's so immediately grabby for a kid, you know, you see he's, he's like, uh, you know, he could have been a children's television show host if he wanted to. Yeah. You know, he yeah. has that vibe and has that rapport with young people who feel like this is a guy who's not threatening. This is a guy who likes me. This is a guy who wants me to be happy and wants everybody to be happy and get along with each other. You know, it's this really powerful image and and sound and everything. And um, that was my first exposure to him. And it, it wasn't really until a few years after that in late grade school when I started reading uh, Marvel comics and not just watching the cartoons um, that I started to become much more aware of Stan because that was still in the days of Stan Lee presents in every issue, you know? Um, so, and, and Stan would be a character occasionally. I mean, there was this, um, uh, <laughs> there was this event that Marvel did in, uh, God, I think it was 96, 97, called Marvel Number Zero, where they just released a bunch of Number Zero issues of comics. Um, so it was like mm -hmm. prequels to issue one of these things. And Stan was the host of every Number Zero comic. Like there was this sort of, you know, cartoon Stan who would say like, hello, true believers, you know, welcome to this this crazy tale of, of you know, Magneto and Charles Xavier before X-Men Number One. And so I grew familiar with him there. And then especially once I started reading Wizard, the comics magazine, um, yep, and yep. started reading my first bits of comics journalism, although sometimes the journalism was more serious than other times, uh, there, were, there were interviews with Stan and information about what Stan had done. And that was really when I started to actually get a sense of, of who he was. And, you know, again, I never really had a deep 
emotional connection with the character of Stan Lee that a lot of pe- like a lot of people did. Um, but I did meet him once, and we included a photo from it in the book. Uh, the only photo of it. Um, I went to the Wizard World Comics Convention in Rosemont, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Is uh, I believe 1998, although the photo's undated. I'm virtually certain it's 1998. Um, I went there. And Stan was doing a signing. And this was a very different time in the comics industry and the superhero industrial complex history as well. Um, (laughs) You know, Stan was not world famous. He had not started – I mean he'd done like little cameos and random things. But the like Marvel movie cameo thing had not begun. And Marvel was not big. I mean Marvel had 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 this really strong beginning of the decade and then was really – had cratered and gone into bankruptcy and all of that. So Stan was doing a signing. And – I only had to wait in line for like, I don't remember exactly, but it was like maybe a half hour, you know, and I didn't have to pay anything. I just went up and handed him something to sign, which is crazy by the standards of his late life, where he had Mm -hmm. this whole machine set up, largely engineered by his his manager and associate and close friend, Max Anderson, where he would charge a lot of money, both from the venue uh, and then all, or from the con rather, and then also from people who wanted to get signatures. Um, And the lines would be, you know, you'd have to wait all day. Um, But for me at that con, I just sort of waited in line a little bit and I hand him a beat up copy of uh, Fantastic Four number 47, which I'd purchased, I believe earlier that day, just for him to sign it. And, um, he did. And as he's signing it, um, my mom took out this little disposable camera that I had brought and she took a picture of the two of us. And so the photo exists. It's just, there it is. It's him signing and I'm standing in front of him at the table and I'm not making the next part up. It, it It's so weird that I don't know why I would make it up. It would sound very silly. Um, Stan looks at me and then looks at, after the flash goes off, he looks at me and then he looks at my mom and he says, you've immortalized me which is a very weird thing. Wow. I know. I know. It was a very, in retrospect, very strange thing that occurred. It probably means nothing. But that was that was my, <laughs> that was my one encounter with Stan Lee one-on-one. I mean, I did a brief email interview with him when I wrote that profile in, that was released in 2016. But it was, you know, an email interview and all the questions were bodlerized and it was, it was brief. Uh, and then I, like, got to ask him a question at a press conference Q&A um, but other than that, the closest we ever came, uh, well, not including that, the closest we ever came was, was a, I believe in 1998 at the Wizard World convention. And it's so bizarre that that photo exists, you know? Um, but my mom held on to it and we found it a few years ago and we figured why the hell not? Let's put it in the book. So it's, it's in there. Love it. That's wonderful. Um, well, thanks so much for, for joining us for this conversation. I, I do want to have you back on sometime as just oh, part please. of my roundtables where we talk about one of the shows or movies or I would comic love, series, et cetera. I, w- I would love that. This was a really interesting conversation, and uh, we're clearly cut from similar cloth when it comes to the way we think about this stuff. So keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. And so for our listeners, when is the book going to be available to, sure. to everyone else? Yeah, yeah. So the book comes out February 16th. Um, if you want to pre-order it, just go to abrahamreisman.com. It's, uh, R I E. So Abraham, R I E S M A N.com. Uh, if you do misspell the I and the E and transpose them, I have that domain also registered, so it'll redirect good, you. Good job. Um, but <laughs> yeah, you can, you can pre-order through there, um, and find me on various social platforms as well. But yeah, February 16th, pre-order now. And yeah, Twitter, you're Abraham Joseph. At and, Abraham um, Joseph, correct. As f- 
As for me, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much. Uh, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn is my handle. Um, and uh, my new Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast, Deep Space Dive, does indeed <laughs> continue with some amazing conversations coming up around colonialism, capitalism, and uh, Judaism, and Star Trek, and just a whole host of nerdy things about a fucking gorgeous, brilliant television show from the 90s that is as vital today as it was before. And as always, go to graphicpolicy.com for comics news and reviews and comics journalism. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.